Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke this evening. The focus will be on Luke 20 verses 1 to 9, but I want to back up a little and pick up some context in Luke 19, and we'll be there in just a moment. I want to give you a little bit of the lay of the land here. Uh, Tonight, the sermon will be a little different than my usual approach. I want to uh, incorporate a few personal stories to go along with this text to help us see why the question that Jesus poses in the text is so important and so relevant. And so I want to begin in a moment by sharing a couple of stories. Uh, Hopefully they will be funny or at least weird to you. And then we will look at the story of Luke in Luke 20. And then I want to end with a sad story and then try to come back and clean up the mess of that sad story uh, before we get out of here. And all of this should only take about 90 minutes and, and then we'll be done. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the gospel of Luke. As we consider tonight... Whether baptism is top-down or bottom-up, that is the question. Let us hear the word of the Lord Jesus. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that is the word of the Lord. Be to God. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. you may be seated. Well, you can imagine after many years of ministry, I've had a few experiences with baptism. Some uh, very funny, some very weird, some very sad. And I just want to highlight a couple of things for you to show you that not only is the doctrine of baptism strange and odd to many modern Christians, but the practice of it can often lead to strange things as well. I don't want to embarrass anyone at all, so I will try to avoid names, but there are some interesting things that have happened in recent years, which I'll get to in a moment, and we'll build up to that. But going back a few years, uh, when... My family and I lived in Mexico. I experienced what has to be one of the funniest, in my mind, one of the funniest baptisms that I was ever a part of. There was a woman who was very dear to us. She was about the age 
of my mother at the time. So that was the distance between us. And she was very mother-like towards me. She came to faith through a, a home Bible study that we were leading, and she wanted to be baptized. She had never been baptized in her life, and she asked about it. She saw that at, in those days we were immersing people, and that was curious to her. She was terrified of water, didn't understand why she had to get into a tank of water and go underwater for it to be a valid baptism. She even appealed to the fact that her own daughter had been baptized in a Presbyterian church in Acapulco by sprinkling. So she said, why can't we do that? I couldn't bear to tell her that I was wrestling with the same question in those days, but under the tradition I felt compelled to live by the standards of that group of people. And so I said, just give it some time and we will work this out. Well, a few days later, she came back and said that she wanted to be immersed. And so we, we had to do this. We ordered a water truck to come in and pump water into the baptistry because the water situation is so terrible. So they bring this ice cold water from a well and pump it into the baptistry. She and I descend into the water and my knees are freezing. I mean, this water is really cold. She comes into the water. She's already trembling with fear. She gets into the water. We go through the situation. She confesses her faith in Jesus. Her daughter is watching. The whole church is present. And I baptize her. And as soon as she comes out of the water, she says, Santa Maria, el agua está fría. If you, you know enough Spanish to know, she was saying, Holy Mary, this water is cold. Which made people in the church say, wow, her first prayer after baptism is to Mary. <laughs> That's the funniest one I think I've ever experienced. And it's only rivaled by something that experienced when we baptized some of our children a few years ago. And I don't want to embarrass her at all. But you remember the reactions of, not my baby sister, and those kinds of things. And so... It's a funny experience to see that God has used this very um, basic and often crude means to reveal something about himself to us. And so those are a couple of funny stories. Now, a couple of weird stories that I've been a part of. Well, actually, I'll keep it to one. Uh, years ago, this was in my first ministry, a young man came to our church and he had grown up in and among Christians or a Christian home and around Christians, but he had never submitted himself to Christ in baptism. And so after a gospel meeting, as, as we called those things in, the, in those days, he wanted to be baptized, but he wanted me to do the baptism, to, to perform the baptism. We had a guest preacher there all week and the guest preacher I think felt that he was doing all the work of preaching. And so he should have been the one to perform the baptism. But this young man insisted that I perform the baptism. And so I reluctantly did so. I felt odd about the, the arrangement and felt that the older brother uh, was being slighted in some ways. But what was odd about it is the older brother didn't quite trust me to get it right. He was very particular about the way this thing had to go down. So he's instructing me on what to say and how to do it. And when we came to the moment of performing the baptism, there are just a handful of people there. I baptized the young man and he stood up out of the water. It was baptism by immersion. He stood up out of the water and the older preacher said to me, no, 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 no. You didn't do that right. I said, what do you mean I didn't do it right? And he said, the top of his head is still dry. 
And so this part of his head from around his forehead was still dry. Now, in my defense, the young man had a lot of hairspray in his hair because he was thinning and he had a little bit of a comb over going. And so we had a little bit of an argument there with this man trying to convince me to rebaptize this young man. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And so that was a very odd experience. So I mentioned these stories to say, again, the question that Jesus raises here might seem, uh, it might seem like he's straining out gnats. It might seem kind of nitpicky. It might even seem like a gotcha question, but it's actually a question that was relevant in his context. And I want to argue that it's just as relevant in our context today. And we'll come back to that relevance in just a moment. But let's enter into the story together now. You see that in this story, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders who, by the way, were jealous of him and troubled by his popularity. And so they come demanding to know who authorized Jesus, one, to drive out of the temple those who were selling animals for sacrifices. That happened at the end of 19. And then two, to teach daily in the temple. Who authorized you to do these things? Now, one reason they had confronted Jesus is because Jesus came into Jerusalem in such a way that maybe not to our eyes, but to their eyes, it was was poking and prodding them towards a fight. In other words, Jesus was actually picking a fight with these religious leaders. And it only took a little bit of time, but Jesus drew them off sides, not only by riding a donkey into Jerusalem and driving out the sellers at the temple, but he draws them off sides because he's teaching and preaching at the temple every day. And when these guys can't bear it anymore, they go and they confront Jesus. And Jesus did what Jesus typically does, and that is he turned the tables on them and put the burden or the onus on them and said, well, I've got a question for you. In other words, you answer my question and then I'll answer your question. And what blows my mind about this is that the religious leaders take the bait instead of saying, no, 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 you answer us first. They start trying to figure out how they would answer Jesus's question. And the question is, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, it's far more relevant, far more important and incisive than it might seem. And here's why it cuts through the fat of their religious veneer and it gets down to the bone and they knew it. And that's why they huddle up and they start discussing. And so while they're huddling up and discussing their answer, I want to take you back briefly and and remind you of what we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at John's baptism. Now, trust me, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but I do want to give you enough of the flavor so, so you'll understand what was going on. Remember that in those days, so just go back and in the context of Luke, it would be like going back to two and a half, three years, okay? Religious leaders went out to John and they saw that he was preaching and baptizing and they said, he might be the Christ. And so they asked him, are you the Christ? And the reason they asked him that is not only because he was preaching, but because he was preaching at the Jordan River and he was baptizing in a particular way that made them think he might be the Christ. 
In other words, so many things were lining up. They saw that he's at the Jordan baptizing. And the Jordan was significant because that's where God's people crossed from the wasteland into the promised land. It's where Elijah crossed over and was taken up by a chariot of fire in the whirlwind and left his mantle behind for Elisha. And so that was a clue. Another clue was that John baptized with water and he was proclaiming the good news of forgiveness of sins, calling people to turn from sin and trust in the Lord. And he said that he was preparing the way for the Lord. He was actually preaching the word of God, the word of God written in the scripture. So he's preaching from the book of Isaiah. And the other thing is, John was baptizing the people in the same way that the priest before him had baptized. That is, by sprinkling and pouring water on God's people. We've already looked at all of this before, but I briefly remind you that the scriptures describe these priestly baptisms that you see in Leviticus and in other places. These ceremonial washings and ritual cleansings, they are considered baptisms by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9. So the scriptures tell us that this is what the Christ was going to do. The Christ was going to come preaching and he was going to baptize his people and save them from their sins and set them apart for God's own possession. And he was going to do that by sprinkling water and pouring water on the people. You could go back to Isaiah 52, 12, where Isaiah says, as many were astonished at you, referring to the Christ, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. God said in Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And elsewhere, God says in Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. And God said in Joel 2, 28 and 29, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, your old, your young, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So all of that to say the fact that John, who was a priest who came preaching God's word and baptizing with water by sprinkling and pouring clearly shows us as we read Luke that John's baptism was from above and not below. It was from heaven and not from Earth. It was from God and not from man. And there was a time when the religious leaders wondered if John might be the Christ. But you fast forward three years. And now they're not convinced or persuaded by that. That was so three years ago that we thought John was the Christ. But we've seen since then that John was arrested and imprisoned and executed. So times have changed. They're in their huddle. They're discussing what they might say. And and you see in the story how they're weighing out the options. If we say this, this will happen. If we say that, the other will happen. They finally come out of their timeout 
And here's their profound answer. Now keep in mind, these are scholars. These are theologians. These are lawyers. And they come out and they say, here is our answer, our final answer. We don't know. They weren't interested in discovering the truth about baptism. They were interested in preserving their lives and towing their party line. So they lied through their crooked teeth in order to save their stiff necks. And they weren't the only ones who did that. We've seen people do that through the years. I've seen people do that. Wrestle with these things and then decide, I've got to tow the party line. I can't budge on this. In other words, they count the cost and some think the cost is too high to go one way or the other. And so they stay pat. In other words, when you look at these religious leaders, what you have to conclude about them is that these men were cowards. And not just cowards, they were also unbelievers. They were cowards because they feared man, not God. They feared man so much they refused to act on their convictions as religious leaders. And they were unbelievers because they refused to believe the prophet God sent to them to preach the gospel to them. And so they didn't receive the gospel nor the baptism that he preached. They would not repent and believe. And so these men are in terrible condition. So in the end, they would not answer Jesus's question. And Jesus in turn says to them, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. Jesus knows that if they had answered his question the way they knew they should have answered it, they would have also known the answer to the question they posed him. That like John's baptism, Jesus's authority came from heaven. Now, that was then. This is now. And I want to try to make a few connections here to show why this matters. That question posed in Jesus's day can be used to help us grapple with the doctrine of baptism In our own day, I know you well enough to know that many of you have wrestled with this and you wondered about your own personal baptism. Was that from heaven or was it from men? You look at family members around you who were baptized in other traditions and you think, is that from heaven or is that from men? Or maybe some of you look at what's happening in our church and you see a little baby receive baptism. And maybe deep down inside you say, is that from heaven or is that from men? And we're all wrestling with this. We all wrestle with this because in the Christian community, there is a lot of confusion over what baptism is. The reason I think this question is so helpful for us is because it really cuts through the fat and gets down to the bone of what we are trying to deal with here. In other words, we look at the Christian community and it's easy to see that many baptisms We might even say the majority of evangelical baptisms in the United States are baptisms that come from below. And yet we're a part of a tradition that says baptism comes from above. And we believe the orthodox historic position is that baptism comes from above, not from below. And let me show you what I mean by that. You're in a conversation with someone, a family member who wonders why you're in a church that baptizes babies. And they start to tell you all of the reasons why baptizing babies cannot be legitimate, cannot be right. And what it all comes down to, guaranteed, it all comes down to this. They believe baptism is from below and not from above. In other words, they believe it arises out of man's desire and effort, not what God promises and pledges. 
but what man promises and pledges. And coming from that perspective, they say a child, a baby, cannot make that pledge and promise. To which we would say, you're absolutely right. But we're not practicing a baptism from below. We believe baptism is from above. It's from heaven, not from earth. It comes from God, not from man. So what are we telling babies when they come to be baptized? What are we telling parents who bring their children? What are we saying about these things? We are encouraging one another with the gospel of grace. And we're saying, hey, everyone, God is declaring promises to this child. This child is going to be signed and sealed with the pledge and promise of God. Not the pledge and promise of man. And between the two, which one has more strength? Which one has more endurance? Which one is more faithful? Which one can persevere longer? The promise and pledge of God or the promise and pledge of man? Well, we believe it's the promise and pledge of God. You might be surprised to know this, but in the last couple of years, uh, Bo and I have witnessed this in our presbytery as young men come up for licensure and ordination. They're asked a range of questions on all kinds of things. You would be shocked to know some of the questions they've been asked. This past week, I participated in an exam in Fort Worth where four men came to be examined for licensure and ordination. And the question always comes up, questions like this. I'll just mention a few and won't give you the answer, okay? In case you ever go for licensure and ordination, you, I don't want you to have a cheat sheet, okay? But questions like this will be posed to these men who are desiring ministry of the gospel, Is immersion necessary or required by God? Is Mormon baptism a valid Christian baptism? Is rebaptism ever necessary? Is Roman Catholic baptism a valid Christian baptism? Is sprinkling three times in the triune name of God permissible? Is it proper for an unordained person like a friend or a family member to administer baptism and so forth and so on? Now, you might be saying, wow, that's that's too much. I don't want to go there. I don't I don't want to talk about all of that. But these are the kinds of things that people have to wrestle with because of the context in which we live. According to the scriptures, uh, there are basically two things to consider to keep it very simple. Is baptism from heaven or is it from earth? Is it from God or is it from man? Is it from above or is it from below? That's what we want to know. So again, all of that might seem like straining out gnats to you, but do you know that you ask the same kinds of questions in your own life? We visited with some of you and we know you do. And if you've been around me very long, you know that I wrestled with these things through the years as well. So to put a very fine point on it, some of us considering what we have learned about the gospel of grace, and then we look at our experience in light of what we've learned about the gospel of grace, might be asking, is my baptism by immersion in the church of Christ a valid baptism? Should I seek to be rebaptized? Is God mad at me for getting baptized two or three times? I was just trying to rededicate my life to him. I was baptized twice, by the way. 
I wish it weren't so, but that's the case. Is my baptism by sprinkling in the Roman Catholic Church legitimate or not? Is it necessary for me to get rebaptized in the Presbyterian Church now that I know the truth? Please note the smile on my face. I know I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you. We've all asked these questions. We ask these questions because we want to know what is right and good. And those of you with a tender conscience and tender hearts probably wrestle with this more than others. But I want to put your mind at ease. I want you to know that if the baptism that you received, if the baptism that you received, whether whether you received it elsewhere in another tradition whether it was administered by someone who might not have needed to baptize you, if you're trying to figure out if it's from God or man, heaven or earth, above or below, all of those things. Well, here's one way to answer that question. If the baptism is administered according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the name of the triune God, with water, In the context of a true Christian church, not a cult or not a sect, that baptism is from God, not man. It is from heaven, not earth. It is from above, not below. Perhaps even despite the theology that the minister or pastor holds who performed the baptism. The best and easy way I know to answer that question is your baptism from Above or below is this. If a baptism is administered top down as God's pledge and promise to man, it's a legitimate baptism from heaven. If it's administered bottom up as man's pledge and promise to God, well, it might not be legitimate in some sense. It might be irregular. And that's where most of us find ourselves wrestling with this. Valid, not regular, What do I do about that? Well, here's what you do. You put your trust in Jesus Christ and not in the mode of your baptism, not in who baptized you, not in where you were baptized, not in how you felt when you were baptized, or if you can remember what what it was like when you were baptized. You put your faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ. That's what you do. Here's a sad story I want to end with. Recently, a pastor friend of mine private messaged me a video of a baptism that took place at his church plant. And the caption that he sent along with the video said, We dunked a Presbyterian this Sunday. Smiley face. I watched the video and I learned some things about the young woman because so much was said about her. I learned that the young woman who had been baptized as an infant, who was raised by faithful Christian parents who pointed her to Jesus through the course of her life, a young woman who had made a profession of faith in Christ 15 years ago, who was known to be a follower of Jesus, quote, for a really, really long time, who openly celebrated God's faithfulness to her throughout all of these things, from her infancy to her adulthood. 
was baptized. Because, as they said in the video, she came from a tradition that does not practice believer baptism by immersion. You see what they did? They elevated their mode of baptism above the meaning of baptism. They elevated their way of baptizing above the way that God promised He would baptize. I felt terribly disappointed, to say the least. And so after watching the video clip, I replied to my pastor friend, you mean you rebaptized a baptized Christian? To which he said, yes, I mean that. Now think about that. She was born into a Christian family. She was given the sign and seal of God's pledge and promise in her top-down infant baptism. And over the course of her life, God kept His promise to her. And yet, for a variety of reasons, despite all that God had done for her, she and others in that church felt like her top-down baptism was no longer valid. It was not good enough. And so she submitted herself to a bottom-up baptism as a symbol of her pledge and promise to God. Now, please don't think I'm being too harsh on her. I understand people get caught on the horns of a dilemma. But what I am saying, I'm using that story as an example to encourage all of you to not go there. I want you to know that if you're baptized into Christ, that is enough. You might not have gotten it right, but Christ did. You might not feel that it was right. You might be curious about it. You might be weakened. You might struggle with it and wondering, was it good enough? And I can say that no baptism is ever good enough. But Christ is. And that's all that matters. As your kids are growing up in the faith and they've been baptized into Christ, you need to impress upon your children that Christ is enough for them. And God is keeping His promises to them. So that what happened to this dear sister will not happen to any of your children. What happened to her will not happen to any of you. Do not put your trust and faith in men and what men say, what men do. Don't put your trust in yourself and how you feel about these things. But put your faith, hope and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I say that this woman's first baptism was from heaven and her rebaptism was from men, I'm not saying that because one was Presbyterian and the other was Baptistic. I'm saying it's because one was top down the way the scriptures tell us it should be, and the other is bottom up. And that's all I mean by that. I want you to know the truth about Jesus Christ and your baptism. That baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit signifies and seals our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's.
I'm telling you these things because I want you to live your life improving upon your baptism day after day after day. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of baptism to others. Hear what our confession says and how it frames this. How do we improve upon our baptism? It is by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it. The privileges and the benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of the baptism and our engagements. By growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying, the putting to death of sin and for the quickening, life giving of grace. And by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. Was your baptism from heaven or from men? If you put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, then you know that it was from heaven and not from men. Well, much more can be said about these things, but that's enough for one evening, isn't it? Enough to think about. If you would like to further this conversation in any way, if you have any doubts or fears or worries about your own life, about the life of your children, family members or friends, please come and talk to us. Please, let's work this out. And what we'll do is remind you not of which baptism is better and which mode is better, but what we'll do is point you to Jesus Christ and say He is the true and better way. And if you're baptized into Christ... That is enough for God, and it ought to be enough for you.